we're social beings, we do depend on each other. And when it comes to this epidemic, our area of the country, our little block, our business is only as good as the weakest link. Welcome to the Insight Podcast from Rain. I'm Emily Donahue. Today, Rain's founder and chief collaborative officer, David Lawrence, speaks with two guests. Jim Sisko, the founder and CEO of Enoto Global, a social risk advisory firm, and Dr. Frederick Southwick, an infectious disease expert with the University of Florida. As the United States began reopening state by state from the pandemic lockdown, the number and rate of infections increased. By June, several states had surpassed previous peak infections, and the nation was experiencing 40,000 new cases a day. The experts, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, warned the number of infections could rise to 100,000 new cases a day. How did we get here? Our panelists discussed the shortcomings of too much data and too little coordinated messaging. Let's listen in. Fred and Jim, it's uh, really an honor and privilege to speak with both of you and to gain your perspectives on this very, very important uh, moment in time. Fred, let me start with you. And um, I think of these, our discussion in really three or four separate points. There's the data, which is the medical data and what that, that is saying. There is the trend of the data and what may be coming up uh, in the future. And then there is the behavioral data, how people are responding, reacting, what they're doing, and informational uh, data. What are they hearing? What are they saying? Fred, maybe if we could just start with a discussion about what the current medical data is saying and where, where it's trending. Okay, yes, uh, David, it's, it's a very disturbing, the data at the present time. Uh, what uh, we're seeing is in certain states, there is an exponential growth. By that, I mean an extremely steep growth in number of diagnosed cases. And uh, Texas, Florida, Arizona are some of the states that are really taking off. When we get that kind of growth in cases, that means that it will be impossible to case find, to actually uh, identify cases, contact trace, and isolate because there's just too much. Each uh, contact tracing, one individual, when they get infected, come in contact with anywhere from 20 to 50 people. So if you have, in the case of Florida, 9,000 cases in one day, there's no way that you can get that under control. There's no way that you can case fine. So our system is being overwhelmed. And then the other thing we know that approximately 20% of cases end up being hospitalized. So, and they will usually be hospitalized one to two weeks, three weeks after their first symptoms, after their first diagnosed. So we know in those states, that their health systems will become overwhelmed and that the number of ICU beds uh, will be uh, overrun. And the other thing we know that somewhere about 10% of those are, actually 20% of those are hospitalized at least 
will end up on respirators and often many more than that. So we are in, in big trouble and I'm very concerned. And the, the frustration to me was that three weeks ago, uh, the predictions, uh, it was predicted that these things would happen based on the modeling. Now, the other point I would make is that there's been a lot of criticism of modeling. Now, do we criticize our weather forecasters because they don't get the weather absolutely perfect? We shouldn't throw out these models because they aren't, don't exactly predict, but they give us warnings and they tell us what we should be doing to prevent the predicted future. And originally, fortunately, what happened is we actually did at react to the forecast. We did shelter in place. And as a consequence, the predictions were not fulfilled. However, now that we've opened up and we opened up far too quickly, the modeling suggested we should hold shelter in place for a minimum of, of two and a half to three months. We mostly sheltered for about a month. And then the other problem that we had is we did not teach our, the public what to do when once we opened up. They didn't really, there wasn't a unified voice with regards to masks, without regards to uh, uh, dis social distancing, with regards to avoiding places with large crowds. So uh, this is about as perfect a storm as we could have. So Fred, let me, let me just um, pull on a couple of those threads. First, um, and I think it's always helpful, uh, you know, the expression, all politics is, is local. One might also apply that to the field of infectious diseases. Give us a sense of what you're seeing. You're based in Florida. What specifically are you seeing in Florida and what are you most concerned about? Well, I, I don't know that many uh, physicians in South Florida, but I understand that the Miami area, the Fort Lauderdale area, the West Palm Beach area, ICU beds are starting to fill up. Um, in northern Florida, we're still a little bit early in that exponential curve. In other words, when you see the growth, it's a doubling. So 2 to 4 to 8 to 16 to 32 to 64. Then when you get up there, you start moving. The curve goes very steep. We're still about about 64 but we're going to start getting to one to thirty-two, etc. It's going to go. It's going to one to one twenty-eight, whatever. It's going to get much, much steeper very quickly. In Gainesville, we have the University of Florida, which has fifty thousand students. It's turning out that some of the students are coming back for summer terms, and we have seen we were we had uh, uh, on average two to three new cases a day. Uh, about three weeks ago, following Memorial Day, uh, when everybody uh, went out and decided that the epidemic was no longer existed. Um, and about two weeks after surprise, we started to see the cases go up and we now are having 40 to 50 per day. And most of them are young people uh, that are under age 25. Now, one of the problems I fear and you experienced in New York City, is that uh, naturally college-age students interact a lot. Mobility, the more mobile you are, the more people you socialize with, the more likely you are to pick up the, the virus, the more likely you are to spread the virus. 
And we use a, a value called R sub zero or R, 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 R naught. And that is how many cases will one individual, how many people will one infected individual uh, infect? Uh, on average, it is said for this virus, they on average infect 2.5 to 2.7. Well, I am quite sure, although the, I've not seen the data yet, when you're talking about college age kids in universities, just as like in New York City, the R sub not the R, R sub zero was five. I predict in the university it's going to be five or even higher. Now, as long as they're under twenty-five, very few will be hospitalized. Some will, but the problem is they are going to come in contact with waiters, store clerks, banks, whatever with people that are of uh, a higher age. And those individuals will get more severe disease and they are going to end up in the hospitals. Very often the debate gets framed in terms of do we open, at what stage, at what time, or don't we open? And that sometimes misses the point. It's not just simply whether you open or not, but how you open and what precautions are institutions and people taking. And that, of course, opens up to a bigger discussion about the role of the police and the role of government and contact tracers and things like that. So we'll get into that a little bit later. But I think, you know, the benefit of having you, Fred, on this podcast is the way you've been able to frame what people have to focus on. These are not political decisions alone. They're certainly not medical decisions alone. There are behavioral aspects, there are social aspects, and there are community aspects very much that are implicated by the current virus and the decisions that have to be made. So, Jim, give us a sense of the data that you are looking at, which is not the medical data. It's more the behavioral data, the communications data, and the informational data. What are you seeing out there? Uh, thanks, David. So we built a platform and we wanted to understand the discourse at a national level. And then we also did a deep dive looking at specifically Florida. And the two biggest takeaways that came out of the data analytics is, number one, there, there was a large amount of misinformation that was being socialized within the public discourse. 37% of uh, the national discussions was comprised of misinformation or disinformation. And 41% of the information was misinformation or disinformation within Florida. That has a huge impact on shaping public perception. And when we looked at public perception or sentiment with regard to specifically the, the second wave of the, the COVID pandemic or the crisis, we saw that there's high levels of neutral sentiment, 37% nationally and 41% um, uh, it, within Florida. And I think that it really validates, you know, Fred's assertion that there's no unified voice in, and people are, they're, they're fearful. They're uncertain about reopening. And this uncertainty theme we've found, uh, throughout the discourse. And, you know, I'm not a politician. I'm, I'm not a medical professional. Um, but I think that understanding how we should behave and what measures we should take and having that clearly disseminated and articulated would go a long way to 
helping, number one, you know, reduce that net neutral sentiment and informing people on what actions and activities and behaviors they should, they should take. Um, prior to, you know, the starting the podcast, I asked Fred a very uh, specific question. And I said, is um, flattening the curve analogous to prolonging the inevitable? And Fred, you know, answered very clearly and said that everyone will be affected by affected by this, uh, by this uh, disease until a uh, virus cure is found. And for me, understanding this and framing this under that context makes things very clear. It's now how do we, uh, how do we take this information and make sure people are aware of, of how to do that? And I hope that answers the question in a way that didn't go too far uh, into a rabbit hole. No, that's great, but I, uh, no rabbit hole. In fact, uh, there are some holes I want to crawl down. Let's just make sure we can get out of them, Jim. So when you talk about disinformation or misinformation, can you give us some examples? Sure. Um, we found this to be a trend that's happening not only in, you know, in social media, but in political campaigns and, and even in uh, you know, examples that we've done for other clients. We see that this information is is our misinformation or disinformation is being uh, disseminated by individuals and organizations. The the intent behind these individuals and organizations uh, is obviously for their own objectives. Some is to create fear. Some is to create uncertainty uh, for either political purposes or for their own agendas. So we can actually extract the the bots and the trolls. And uh, we use machine learning to identify those informations. A lot of times it's easy when you've been doing this for a while because it's the same individuals and organizations that are that are posting uh, social media posts or uh, spreading uh, fake news through sites. So uh, it's always interesting to do a deep dive. Unfortunately, we didn't have the time to do a deep dive for, for this particular case, but we were able to extract the, the, the aggregate uh, you know, data points and then be able to use the clean, authentic data to actually run the sentiment analysis. And then there's huge deltas between uh, public sentiment when the misinformation is inserted into the uh, conversations and when it's not. Where does this disinformation or misinformation come from? Like I said, uh, for this one, we, we didn't have time to, to specifically identify where these sources were coming from. But in previous cases, we saw that Sometimes it's um, organizations like uh, we were working in a case in California for a Smarter Cities initiative, and we saw that there was a huge amount of uh, information for solicitation of prostitution and, and pornography, and that was due to the close proximity within the Los Angeles County. So what we've seen is that this information or disinformation is really specific to the, to the topics in the geographic area where, where we're looking at. And just from some of the other work we've done with uh, you and Inodo, uh I want to remind the audience that, you know, some of the constituencies here which have an interest in disinformation, I guess I'd, I'd put in the category of mischievous. Some people are well-intended but misinformed and they spread inaccurate information because they believe it. There are quasi-political movements that are focused on everything from government conspiracies to the concerns about vaccines to uh, what 
I'll refer to as, you know, issues about why certain political parties are driving a particular agenda around this. Uh, but you also have uh, people who are seeking to profit with, and then also foreign influence, um, state-sponsored efforts to drive divisiveness and conflict, et cetera. And Jim, would it be fair to say that, you know, all those communities are at least potentially engaged in the miscommunication or disinformation that's floating out there? Wholeheartedly. We've seen that um, the sources for this run that full spectrum of the ones you covered and even some more that you didn't cover. So, yeah, I would say that's spot on. And Fred, I know uh, a good part of your time is is playing the role of Sisyphus, rolling a rock up the hill and only to watch it roll back down. <laughs> you've been very focused, I know, on, on disinformation and disinformation campaigns. And I know you and, and your colleagues around the world have been trying to set the record straight. Maybe you can share with the audience the, the type of misinformation or disinformation that you are seeing out there uh, with, you know, as the first or second wave uh, of uh, what the public is hearing and seeing. Uh, yes, David, it, this is, I like to think of accurate information, scientifically based information, information that can save your life as a protective bubble that can, when you follow the dictates of infection control, by the way, these have been known since 1350. And uh, there's a book called Decemeron, uh, written in 1350 in Florence, Italy, uh, about the Black Plague. And in that, they just book uh, the initial descriptions are of those individuals that didn't believe that the Black Death, you could spread it, and those that did. Those that did isolated themselves and went out in the countryside, they survived. Those that didn't went to bars, drank, uh, uh, socialized, and they all died. So these principles have been known for decades and decades, and we need to actually adhere to them. Now, I think what's happened, and, and Jim's work is so very important, um, there are so many sources from which people can distort the truth now that it's for a physician, we are not experts in this kind of dissemination. So the voice of inaccurate voices, the distorted voices are actually winning out. And so what happens is I think of it as a protective bubble and the, this, uh, these false narratives are puncturing that bubble and then allowing uh, the virus to reach uh, the people. And uh, that is why in the United States, we never, we got a peak we did go into shelter in place. It went down part way, but because the messages were so inexact and so varied and the science did not really reach the people, the accurate science, the, we just went into a plateau and we've been in a plateau for about a month. And now after Memorial Day, we are going up at a very steep rate in the United States and particularly uh, in Florida and some of the other states I mentioned. So um, I don't, I think uh, what Jim is doing, I mean, identifying what those sources are 
and then we have to we have to shut them down. Um, otherwise, what this is doing is it's actually killing people. And what when people don't know, when people get misinformation, it's endangering them. And not only that, and the two the two primary examples that I've followed very very closely, the first was hydroxychloroquine, and uh, there were several small, st- highly biased, poorly designed studies that suggested that hydroxychloroquine would work. And then what happened is it got spread all over uh, some news uh, media, the social networks, even the president of the United States. Misinformation continued to spread. And, cl- and there was actually misinformation in the m- unpublished but shared medical literature that had not been peer reviewed. Now, fortunately, I don't think it, in retrospect, it didn't cause serious toxicity, but I can tell you it made the care much more complicated and diluted some physicians into thinking they were, they were improving the health and well-being of the patients when in reality they weren't. Now, the second one, and the one that is most dangerous and malignant now, is the myth about masks. Masks, face masks, it's claimed, do not help. Well, there's a very nice study that I've shared. And, you know, unfortunately, what's my, who, how many people follow me on Twitter? About 850. So, wow, I'm not making a very big impact. And I've made several uh, YouTube videos containing a video from the New England Journal uh, that was shared there uh, using a laser light source to identify droplets from the mouth. And they come out as green dots you see that as they speak normally, even at low volumes, they're spewing out droplets everywhere. It's incredible. And then when they put on a mask, no droplets are seen. So it's very clear if you happen to be a person that's asymptomatic and carrying the virus, and unfortunately we know somewhere between 40 and 60% of people that are infected do not know they're infected, at least early on, And uh, during that asymptomatic and early symptomatic period, they are most highly infectious. If they're just talking to someone else, someone next to them, they will easily infect that person. But if they were wearing a mask, they would not infect them. So the real saying should be, I wear a mask to protect you and you wear a mask to protect me. And so a mask should be a sign of social conscience and concern for my fellow man. But it has been twisted into a a political statement. It has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with rigorous and clear science, defining, uh, showing that masks will benefit and will reduce, uh, if you wear a mask, if everybody were to mask, one person likely infect less than one person and the epidemic would drop. And one of the important things, that, David, that you mentioned is that we had, we had to, st- you know, there was opening up or there were only two alternatives, open it up or stay at home and everything shut down. Well, no, those aren't the only alternatives if we were smart in the way we opened up. In other words, if everyone wore a mask whenever they were out in public, if they only went out in public when they really needed to, to buy things that were necessary or other things but and they avoided closed, space, closed public spaces, that is, small buildings where there's poor ventilation. 
if they maintained a six foot distance, um, if whenever they, if they ate out, they would eat outside where you've got much better ventilation, um, then we would see a dramatic drop in the spread and we could maintain businesses. But the sad part is that we have uh, ignored the masks, said they aren't of benefit. And what's happening is there's great fear to go to a restaurant, to go to any public space right now, because uh, the virus is continuing to spread very, very rapidly. And clearly in Florida, by the epidemic curve, people are not adhering to infection control practices. So Fred, um, great overview. And let me, let me pull out a couple of themes here. That so much of what is driving the discourse right now is political and purposely intended to be sensational as opposed to uh, a calm, rational, clinical discussion that is evidence-based and data-based. Exactly. Exactly, David. And, yeah. and one of the things yeah. I would point out is Europe. Let's look at Europe. Europe, the total of Europe has the same population and slightly larger than the United States, if you take all of Europe. What happened to them, they all went up and they created a mountain. In other words, it, they all went down. They all now have very few cases per day. And there, the governments all created a united message, clear message. You have to wear masks. You have to stay uh, distant. Um, the one area that's been a big problem here and in, in South Korea was documented are bars. It turns out that when people go to bars, they don't, they don't socially distance. They don't wear masks. And you can spread, there can be 50 or 60 infections in one bar in one night. So they are really a problem. So I think most of Europe now has, has closed down the bars. They mostly have outside dining and everyone is wearing masks and everybody is staying home when they can. Uh, but when they're necessary, they are able to go out and businesses are, are, are more active there. There have not been the devastating economic consequences of our country. And so by doing this, we're really damaging our economy in addition to killing large numbers of people, uh, over 120,000 deaths now. I mean, it's, I, I don't understand how we can't see this and understand the consequences of our own behavior and this misinformation. I would ask Jim, um, is this criminal? Is there, should this be against the law? Should the FBI be investigating those that are sharing uh, misinformation and creating these dangerous messages that are leading to the wrong behaviors and increasing the likelihood of people of being infected and dying, not to mention destroying our economy? Well, Fred, before uh, having been a former prosecutor for 10 years, I'll, I'll, I'll make... I'll make the decisions about whether to charge somebody criminally, but you, but you, but you, you do raise a very good point that I want to ask Jim for his perspective, which is, uh, there is all this disinformation out there. It is coming from a multitude of sources. Sometimes people who mean well, and they just want to share what they sincerely believe, but very often not. Why are people taking in advice from these conduits? So, Jim, maybe you can help us unpack that. Yeah, that's a very complex question. But, you know, the way I try to perceive this or look at the lens that I view this from is a very simple one. 
And I use this kind of little analogy or lesson when I speak with like CEOs or, or, or decision makers. Um, I have a little role play. I'll take a cup of coffee or I'll take a can of uh, tomato paste and I'll put it on a table in front of a, a group of, you know, uh, C-level executives in a room. And I'll say, hey, uh, especially like our can of Sprite. And I'll say, hey, does anybody want some of this Coke? And, you know, somebody will look at me and go, well, that's Sprite. And then I'll, I'll say, well, and I'll just talk to another person. I'm like, would you like some Coke? And they'll, they'll say, well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's actually Sprite. And I'll say, excuse me, would you like some Coke? And what, I, what I've done is I started a discourse. I started a conversation around what I've put out. No matter whether, whether or not this is true or not, whether it is a can of Coke or a can of Sprite, I've established truth by being the first person to put my discourse out there. And now what I've done is I've created a uh, momentum in engaging different people. And at, suddenly you'll find that people will say, well, I can see that it's, it's actually soda. And uh, soda is, you know, uh, you know, and it has green on it. And they'll start finding likenesses or commonalities within the discourse that allows the, the communication to spread to other people. And, and that's kind of the simplest way I can describe how and why people are able to take their message and, and, and make it effective. Now, why a particular message goes viral and another message falls flat on its face really has a lot to do with the content. And what we've seen, in, especially in the past six months, is that conversations are very polarized. Whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's uh, racial injustice, whether it's police brutality, um, the discourse is polarized on emotion. And now you're having heightened or amplified messages that are being out there and without a lot of knowledge or information or truth behind it. And I really appreciate you bringing up the Mark Twain quote. And, and we in our company have a Mark Twain quote that we really like to, uh, to, to uh, live by. And it's Mark Twain said, never argue with an idiot. They will drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. And that's kind of what you're seeing happen, you know, within, uh, within uh, social media. There is a popular belief out there, Jim, you probably have seen this in, in social media that there actually aren't, more cases that are occurring here and there aren't actually more cases in the u.s than in europe it's just that we are testing more that's why we know about it yeah there's actually a very good site uh johns hopkins has a website that's looking at every state how many tests they are performing and then the key figure is what percent of those tests are positive now, if there is a, a low level of, of, of virus around and you do a huge amount of testing, the percent positive, uh, and you can see this during when the, the epidemic was quiet, is like 2% of the tests you do are positive. When there actually are more cases, uh, you see the percentage of tests turning positive goes up. And for instance, it was about two to three percent in Florida. It's now at eight to nine percent. So what happens is that tells you 
that more of the population is truly infected. And if you also, if you look at that website, you will see that over the last three weeks, that the number of tests actually being performed had not gone up that significantly. What has happened is the percent that's positive has gone up. Therefore, it is an accurate reflection of an increase in infected patients. So this is simply not true. And uh, it is, is another form of disinformation. And this falsely deludes people into ignoring the consequences of going out without masks, going to restaurants that are within closed environments, and doing all the things that will lead to more people becoming infected. Jim, to Fred's point, uh, he cites to the Hopkins website, there are a number of great ones out there. Uh, As you look at the data that you're able to see, how do you begin to get people to go to these reliable sources of information as opposed to what they might be relying on now? Yeah, that's a difficult question for me to answer. Uh, I mean, really it is about being able to put out a clear, consistent message that continually reinforces the the theme or the topic that you're trying to disseminate. Um, It goes back to what we said earlier, that the communications have been disjointed. They haven't been clear. They haven't been able to articulate a consistent message. And, And it's all because it differs from the national level to the state level to the local level. One of the things that we were able to find in the analysis on the deep dive was that the Miami-Dade County area is experiencing significantly higher numbers of the COVID-19 virus than other areas, and that some of the uh, more rural communities uh, don't feel that they should be subjugated to the same types of of things that the urban communities or or metropolitan areas should be. So it really is a difficult kind of way to find a commonality between the different um, stakeholders that you're trying to target that they can all understand. And and that's really a a difficult problem for any organization to try to, to overcome. But that is, if we could at least clearly, you know, decide that, you know, the steps we want to take and then implement those and message those, that's the first step in, in trying to overcome this this hurdle. Jim, let me build out a theme that you and I have discussed. It's not just the clarity of the message. It's also who is the messenger. And uh, the credibility of the messenger matters as much as the, uh, as the message itself. Yeah, I totally do agree with that. Look, let's look at this crisis, and we have Dr. Fauci, I believe I pronounced his name correctly, on TV, you know, you know, kind of talking about this. He automatically you know, generates instant credibility due to his stature and his position and, and things like that. Um, this is where we need to leverage you know, the, those key influencers in a way that allows them to disseminate the content that is going to shape public perception and then measure that over time. You know, you can have a hundred talking heads all saying the same thing and it's not going to gain the same traction as one key influencer who has, you know, a, a network of 250,000 followers. And sorry, Fred, that you only have, I think 800 and something, but we'll, we'll try and boost you up somehow. <laughs> yeah. The point being the messenger does matter. And Fred, you've already spoken about the, political underpinnings of 
this whole virus um, and how that can quickly skew someone's uh, view of the world and view of the message that's being sent and whether they take it seriously or not. Uh, so just as a last question, let me um, try to sort of summarize another point, Fred, that I know you have focused on. Uh, while this virus impacts everyone, and to the point that, you know, Jim Jim was referencing, uh, he was quoting, he was saying, it's going to impact everyone. And so this notion of flattening the curve is, you know, at least in part about con- being able to make sure that hospital resources can meet the demand at any given point in time. But the fact of the matter is that this, we are, this, this virus impacts everyone, but does not impact everyone equally. And that's one of the profound lessons to come out of um, what has happened here. It has not hit all communities equally. It has not hit all races or ages. Uh, people who have pre-existing medical conditions, people who have certain occupations that they had to go to, to the point about uh, lessons from the 1300s about how to deal with, you know, plagues. Not everybody can get to the country. And so part of what I also heard you say, Fred, was, you know, what's going on in Florida is you see a lot of people 25 and under who may have been ignoring the common sense provisions. Uh, They're coming back to school. They're socializing. They're on the beaches. They're drinking. I'll draw from a personal experience that I had just two Saturday nights ago where I witnessed a 20-block expanse here in uh, midtown Man- mid and downtown Manhattan of literally thousands and thousands of people on the street, shoulder to shoulder, uh, drinking on their cell phones, socializing, nice, beautiful Saturday night. Uh, and, and the crowds were so dense that they spilled out onto the streets, so it wasn't just on the sidewalks but really shoulder to shoulder. And I would tell you that 95% of the people were not wearing masks. And not everyone is hearing the messages equally. Not everyone is absorbing. Not everyone is complying. And not everyone is going to be impacted equally. Uh, And so maybe you can share with us, Fred, a little bit of the medical data of whom this virus impacts. Uh, I'll call it Uh, somewhat asymmetrically, most significantly, and at times most fatally. And what the data to, you know, so far is showing about that. And to your point about why people wear masks, you don't wear a mask to protect yourself. You You wear a mask as a matter of your social and society obligation to your fellow person. Yes, yeah, yeah, David. Actually, uh, Pope Francis, when he first had, he had his first uh, meeting after the uh, and, and during the where he came out of isolation from the pandemic, and he warned. The first thing he did is he warned. He said, "We cannot go back to individualism. We need to be concerned about our society and our fellow man." And Unfortunately, our country is particularly individualistic and I can do it on my own. When in reality, we know all studies show 
that no, we're social beings, we do depend on each other. And when it comes to this epidemic, uh, uh, our area of the country, our little block, our business is only as good as the weakest link. So those that choose not to adhere to the uh, well-known uh, uh, principles of infection control will harm others. And they don't see it. They think it's my individual right. Do you have a right to infect others and maybe potentially have them die? I don't know. I think uh, I would I would question that that right. Um, so, uh, and the people that are particularly at risk are those that have underlying diseases, specifically hypertension, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and cardiovascular disease. Now, it so happens that because of the inequitable uh, uh, inequities of our health system, that particularly African Americans have not had the health care they deserve, they have a higher incidence of hypertension, a higher incidence of diabetes, um, also to some extent chronic obstructive disease and certainly cardiovascular disease. So when they get the disease, they are more likely to die. Uh, people with cardiovascular disease have a approximately a 10% mortality. If you're, uh, if you're under 50, you in general have about a, uh, uh, less than a 1% chance of dying. When you get to 60 to 69, you have about a, uh, 4% chance of dying. When you're, uh, 70 to 79, you have an 8% chance of dying. And if you're over 80, the mortality rate is anywhere from 15% to 25%. For instance, in Italy, it was close, it was 25%. So uh, this is the problem. I'm healthy. I don't care about my fellow man. I want to do what I want to do. And uh, this is, I think, uh, history, history will look very negatively at, at the behaviors of our country and our unwillingness to be consider our fellow man and our community. And one other point that Jim made is that rural areas are different than heavy urban areas where people are more densely packed. And what should be doing, there should be one approach doesn't fit all. And you could create, and this has been recommended by a lot of epidemiologists, you could create three zones. A green zone would be one, one infection for every 60,000 people. A yellow zone would be somewhere one, uh, about two per 100,000 to I think about 20 per 100,000. And then a red zone would be higher. I think actually 70, over 70 per 100,000 becomes a red zone. Now, I think if you promote that, I think then each individual then becomes their own police officer and their own enforcer. And in that way, I think we could get more adherence. But how you shift a culture, uh, sociologists and psychologists have been working on that for decades, and it's a very challenging uh, to change a culture. So I want to thank both of you for some great insights. And um, the data is not just simply data on the spread of the infection. It's the data on how we're behaving. It's the data on 
the sources of information and disinformation. It's the data that says, you know, this is not going to be easy and we have to change our approaches, you know, more broadly to our responsibility, not only to ourselves and our family members, but to each other. And Fred, I thought uh, you summed it up beautifully. Jim, I'm going to count on you to continue to feed us great insights about what people are saying and what they're doing. Fred, you have been a uh, constant source of assistance broadly to our network. I consider both both of you great public servants in that regard. So I want to thank you guys for uh, your continued service. Thank you. My pleasure, David. David Lawrence is the founder and chief collaborative officer of RAIN. He spoke with Jim Sisko, the founder and CEO of Inodo Global, and Dr. Frederick Southwick, an infectious disease expert. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you liked what you heard today and would like to learn more about RAIN, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a member today. RAIN members get access to webinars, podcasts, the daily risk book email digest, expert content, and much more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join. I'm Emily Donahue. Thank you for listening.